Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, uh, we are joined by uh, Grant Cother. Um, uh, we're very excited to have you, Grant, uh, so thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, uh, I've, we've sort of uh, interacted in the same, same circles for a little while now, um, but for people that don't uh, know you, do you want to give people like a sort of an overview of your career and uh, sort of where you're at now and how you got sort of involved in the whole, you know, animal welfare training kind of sphere? Yeah. Um, long story, but started back in 2007 at London Zoo in the UK, ZSL London Zoo. Uh, started as a keeper volunteer, so did uh, as many days a week as I could, where I would go to the section, clean exhibits, learn about the animals, learn about the section. Obviously, there are certain things that I couldn't do for health and safety reasons, but for the most part, uh, the people there were really cool and let me do a lot of cool things. Um, and then I got a seasonal or a temporary position moved to the bird section for a little bit, and then back to reptiles. Uh, in the UK, they have a course that you take while you can do it while you're working. And so it's like a two-year diploma in animal management. Um, it's a long acronym. I can't remember what it's exactly called. But I uh, did that while working with reptiles. Stayed at the reptile department until... 2013 maybe maybe 2012 and then transferred over to the live animal demonstration or children's zoo thing so we did bird shows mixed species shows lots of training uh public interaction all that cool stuff until about 2017 then decided to leave london and move to new zealand which was obviously a short trip away yeah uh got a job at Hamilton Zoo, which is about an hour and a half south of Auckland. Uh, started as a keeper on the birds and reptiles. They call it the natives because that's they don't have any other native animals except for seals or sea lions or something. Mm. And some bats, two types of bats. So did that and then quickly became the team leader of that section. Uh, and then just before COVID hit, we were going to leave New Zealand, um, but obviously plans changed. So I uh, did a secondment as the animal training team leader, so all around the zoo, as well as covering different sections like the carnivores and the primates, specifically the chimps and stuff like that. So started to do a bunch of different things. Uh, and then after that sort of calmed down and we weren't going anywhere in the near future, went back to also being the team leader of birds and reptiles again. So it was kind of doing a, a two thing and managing a team of about eight, eight-ish people. And then all the exotic and native fauna that are in the category of birds and reptiles basically. And then in and amongst that, I uh, met up with Peter Gilgem from Zoo Spenceful. He also came over to New Zealand to do a workshop. Uh, him and I got to talking, became good friends, uh, started to work together in his company, Zoo Spenceful, which is an international animal training and behavior. So we do focus on training, but we focus on lots of topics like diet, nutrition, enclosure design, husbandry, different routines, enrichment, behavior modification, staff stuff, protected contact, obviously shows and presentations, um, and a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah. And then now relocated and doing the Zeus Spenceful freelance stuff for a main job now. Yeah. So uh, n not only do you have, uh, you know, uh, some great experience and uh, lots of things that we want to get into, you're also a fellow Canadian. Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. So 
<laughs> from Alberta, moved to the UK in 2004. And then, yeah, then got British citizenship, then got a New Zealand visa. And now I'm a resident of Greece. So I have a few, a few yeah. different things. Does my accent sound different than most Canadians? Uh, no, it sounds uh, uh, remarkably similar to mine. Uh, although I'm not from Maybe. Alberta myself, and there are different, you know, a little bit of subtleties between the accents there. It's, uh, you know, it's good to have a fellow Canadian on the podcast. Um, yeah, representing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's a couple things I wanted to get into. Um, you know, the some team leadership stuff, because uh, that's a topic, you know, we've talked about before. Um, some of the uh, more spokesperson and, um, you know, animal encounter role, uh, definitely touching on that. And then, uh, you know, reptile um, enrichment welfare is is a huge topic uh, that I get asked about a lot. So, um, you know, if, if we wanted to start with... Um, the supervisory and management sort of sort of role uh, we yeah. do. You know, there's a lot of o- online and, and de- it definitely seems like at a multitude of zoos and something I've experienced uh, myself is, is this sort of divide between, you know, leadership and, you know, quote unquote, frontline staff, uh, you know, and, and I think there's, you know, some of it is, is definitely, is definitely justified. And then, you know, there's definitely a lot of it that comes from, not necessarily understanding leadership and the challenges that come with that and, you know, decision-making over time. Uh, so, you know, from your perspective, having sort of done both, uh, I'd love to hear, you know, what you didn't really realize about leadership before becoming, uh, before getting a, a role like that. Uh, I think to more but two major things sort of stand out for me one is which like how lonely not lonely maybe isolating that it can be because you're always being critiqued and judged whether it's by your boss whether it's by your staff about the decisions that you make everybody has their opinion Whereas when you're a keeper, you're instructed to do something, you do something, get it done, gets critiqued by your manager, not by a whole plethora of of different people. And lonely in the sense that like you're part of a team, but people tend to like tap in and tap out of things that they either like or dislike or agree with or disagree with. But as the person in charge, you have to stick through it to make the decisions and you have to stay for all of it, regardless of whether you would be like, yeah, I'd rather not deal with this. But unfortunately, because that's your role, you have to. And then also you have to be not only the voice to explain it to the other team members or to your manager or to whatever, but if people have concerns, you also have to take that on board. And I feel like a lot of these conversations they're usually like, oh, I don't want to tell everybody. I want, like, I just want you to know. And so then you have to keep things to yourself and you can't have conversations with somebody below a certain level. So if you don't have um, somebody on the same sort of, like a fellow manager or somebody to like bounce ideas off of or get feedback, then it can be like quite difficult. And like, there are easy decisions, but with every decision you need to like think about the impact not only about like how it's going to affect the animals the staff the zoo like even things as simple as like making a leave request if you're in charge of scheduling and somebody's like i really need this time off and you're like okay like i'll do my best but if you're unable to do that then you're seen as like why are like it's a personal matter rather Mm. than like a professional professional one and it's not everybody it's not every case some people understand that certain things are whatever but a lot there's a lot of objectivity that's lost especially if for example you start off like you and i work on the same section and you and i get along we're canadians (laughs) and then and then i get promoted over you and then like there would still be that relationship but then at some point you need to kind of like 
I'm your boss, not your friend and stuff like that. And it can be tricky to, to navigate, especially when you like come up in the ranks in that, that way. And the thing is, is like, we all see people that maybe we agree or disagree that they should be promoted based off of, I don't know, their, uh, knowledge, their skill set, something like that. But ultimately you're doing, you're trying to do the best by the team by the animals and by the zoo that you work for. Yeah, no. And, and, and I definitely think, uh, particularly in that sort of that middle management position, you know, you're, you're, you are sort of, uh, getting it from both sides when it comes to feedback, uh, whether it's good and bad. And that can be, yeah, as you said, uh, uh definitely a lonely position to be in and decision-making is, is, is something that, uh, you know, is really nuanced, especially, in an area like a zoo because there isn't there isn't manuals and case studies a lot of the time for these decisions that you have to make uh, especially with the d- directions of the zoo and and directions of the area that you're in charge of um, you know it, it's like if you're working at a bank or something I'm sure there's I'm sure there's more clear-cut uh, you know x equals x equals y kind of decision making and and I think people get so hung up on what they think is good and bad decision making, as opposed to, you know, did this my supervisor act on the information they were given, and in order to have the sort of best impact on yeah, all those things that you that you talked about the the sort of soup of uh, all of these stakeholders, uh, it's not it's not clear cut, and just because a decision didn't necessarily turn out. Uh, the way you wanted it to doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad decision. If you acted appropriately on the information you were given, there's there's no manual for these kind of things. You have to try things, and and sometimes they don't always work out the way you want them to. Yeah. Yeah, and ultimately, like everybody is there with the same goal in mind. Like, I don't turn from like a good keeper that cares for their animals, looks after them, all this stuff. To suddenly now I'm a manager that I'm going to become a tyrant and be like, I'm doing this for my benefit rather than the benefit of the animals or stuff like that. And it's so easy to then, and I don't know why or how it happens, but as soon as you're in this position, that's when the like critiquing or the judging sort of comes in. Like they'll see, oh, you're, you were a bit late or when you left or how your uniform works, or if you're doing this, the what it says there and it's just like people just need to like remember that we're people too and we are trying to do our best and management isn't easy and often you don't get like training for like how to manage staff and it comes with time and some people are people people and some people are animal people and you always hear especially zookeepers being like i'm not here to work with people i'm only here to work with animals and you're like well yeah that's great, but at the end of the day, it's it's a relationship between everybody. No, absolutely, and and oftentimes it's significantly harder to work with people than it is with animals. Like, it, it's it, I I definitely hear hear that all the time, and it at the end of the day, uh, a well functioning team is the in my experience is the single most important factor to animal welfare, and a lot of those. Uh, things that go into that and go into, you know, making the lives of the animals that you're working with a positive one. It's, it's teamwork. If, if you have a dysfunctional team, the animal is going to have, there's going to be compromises and, and things aren't going to be going as well as they, as they could do. So working with people is absolutely um, super important. And, and yeah, I liked what you said about, you know, not receiving necessarily receiving training for, for management, because that's, that's super common at zoos, uh, based on what I've seen. Uh, you know, you have, when you, when you have other like huge companies, like if you, if you're, if you're going to Google and you become a manager, you're going to go to like a sort of Google management school and it's going to be very involved. And that's just not something that necessarily happens at zoos super frequently. So, um, understanding that and yeah, having that in mind that there are people and assuming positive intent, uh, oftentimes when you're not in management, you don't have all of the information that your manager is acting upon. So it's very hard for you to uh, correctly assume, you know, why the decision was made. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, like, and I don't know where people will get this either, like, performance managing a staff member is so time-consuming mm. that not only does it take away from my main role, which would be looking after the animals, but also other members of staff. Like, you get it where you spend more time speaking to a person, trying to find what the issue is, how they can be motivated, how they can do a better job or the basic level of their job. And then they go out to the zoo and they share their side of the story that you're this awful person who's just picking on them. Or ultimately, if there wasn't an issue, I would, you would be, we would have so much more time just to do whatever, to encourage each other, to learn new skills, to do stuff as a team. Nobody wants to sit in a room and performance manage somebody. It's mm. such, it's, it can be so draining physically, emotionally. And like, it's not something that, from my experience, that people like to do. Like, I don't like to sit into a room. And it was really interesting. All like, I had a team of about eight people. And anytime I would say, oh, can we just have a quick chat? Immediately, just saying that, even if I have not ever told anybody off, I've never once stopped them and said, like, don't do that. They, like, get this, like, why? What did I do? Like, and I'm like, nothing. I just want to have, like, a chat or a catch-up and see how you're doing. But it's that it's that stigma that surrounds, oh, my manager asks me for this. There must be trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you did something that you want to fess up to, there's no trouble. I just wanted to have a, a chat. So it's, like, psychologically, from the outset, people are programmed to think, oh, I've done something wrong or somebody wants to speak to me regardless. Like if I said to you, Kyle, can we just have a chat after? I don't think you'd immediately be like, oh yeah, sure. I'm sure it's that you'd be like, why? What happened? (laughs) What's going on? And you'd be like, nothing. And so it's, it's very interesting. It's really random. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and those are tough situations as you mentioned to be in because, you know, the average person for the most part, you know, is pretty conflict adverse. Like it's, it's the same with like interviews, like interviews are awkward for both parties. It's not like, you know, meeting strangers and, you know, having chats about, you know, whether they're a good fit for a job is just, it's, it's not, it's not a comfortable place to be for a lot of people uh, on both sides of things. And it's the same with anything like performance management, uh, or if you do need to sort of um, intervene in a scenario, it's awkward and you don't, it's, you'd much rather everybody be, uh, you know, absolutely killing it and you you don't have to do anything like that is the ideal place because it's 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 you know uh not in in most people's wiring to want that sort of conflict and want those scenarios to to sort of happen and if it is it's you know it's kind of a tough place to be as manager so um yeah and often when um like i got better at it but when you first start out people put you in the middle Mm -hmm. like you work section and then I work section, and then I notice you make a mess, or you didn't do something right, often I'd find that instead of people maybe going to you and say, hey, was there an issue? Why didn't you get this done? They go, oh, you're not going to believe what Kyle did. This is the fourth time he's da 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 Can you have a word with him? And I'm like, yeah, but then if I come to you and I say, hey, Kyle, like, what's going on? You'll be like, whoa, why am I being attacked by you? You won't immediately think oh, maybe the rest of the team have noticed something or mm-hmm. want to bring something up. So it's like putting you in the middle of certain, because people, I don't know, feel confident, like you say, or like just to have that conversation in such a way that's not going to get somebody's back up or realize that it's just, I'm just letting you know, is everything okay? This is what happened. Do you need any help? Like what's happening? Mm-hmm. But Again, it's that that thing where people just assume the worst, I guess, of some people, fortunately. Yeah, yeah. So so if you, you know, as a, you know, thinking as a team leader, like, do you have, like, you know, an important thing to think about that you'd like to, you know, share with other people in the in that sort of role uh, that you think would be beneficial? I think the thing that you said about, like, intention, because Mm -hmm. when a decision is made, It may not be the preferred decision or the favorite decision, but ultimately I'm not there to please everyone. I'm there to do right by 
the animal or whatever the decision might be. And yes, you bounce ideas if you have somebody to say, what do you think about this? Do you think this is the right decision? But as far as I know, nobody just goes in, looks at a problem and just goes, yeah, it's that. Like, mm. I need to cover myself to make sure that if my manager comes to me or even if the staff comes to me and says, why are we doing this? I can say, well, because this, 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 this. I shouldn't have to do that for everything. I should just be trusted to say that I'm not just going to make a decision off the back, but that I have the intention that I'm not there to cause anyone any harm or do anything that is damaging to anybody. But ultimately, not everybody's going to be happy. But mm. just trust that the person that's doing it has the intention of doing it correctly. Obviously, this is very subjective. Yeah, I'm talking about myself. But yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think if it's anything, uh, if there's anything other than, you know, positive intent, then there's way bigger problems going on. So I think it's a safe, uh, you know, generalization to make, I think, you know, that positive intent and the relationship of support, you know, like, it, like, you know, the team needs to support their, their leaders and the leader needs to support the team. And it's a, and it's that sort of relationship. And when that breaks down, like that's when things get, get worse. That's when like transparency goes away. That's when, uh, you know, a lot of things start to happen that make that positive and that sort of blur the lines between why things are happening and, 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 uh, you know, why they, certain things should happen. And, and I think a lot of people don't really realize that, that, you know, having, not having that relationship is actually probably the biggest contributing factor to why you're unhappy with that relationship in the first place, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and nobody has the time. Like if yeah. you're in charge of, I don't know, a couple hundred, maybe thousand of animals and you need to make a move or pair something up or take some, and every time you say, move this animal there, somebody goes, explain to me your reasoning behind that. Like no one has the time. Trust that that process has happened. Mm -hmm. If you have some serious concerns, then yes, of course, voice them. But ultimately, you're the person who's making those decisions for a reason. You've been put in this position. I haven't suddenly switched to an animal-hating monster because I've become a manager. Yeah. So, yeah. And, I mean, it's disappointing. But often, sometimes people who are the ones to cause all these things are the ones that then if something happens to point the finger and say like, told you so, but ultimately it doesn't matter because it's my responsibility regardless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's tough, especially if you're put in a position where, you know, past relationships with, uh, you know, older supervisors and managers, uh, that used to be in the role that you're in now, uh, are affecting the relationship that your staff has with you currently. And that's, that's a tough yeah. one. That's a tough one to, to navigate, um, you know, and, and yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that go into that, uh, you know, and, and transparency is one, uh, like a topic that comes up pretty frequently. Uh, do you have sort of thoughts on, you know, the whole transparency thing and, and, you know, management being like secretive and, and, and this kind of stuff? I mean, a lot of the things in terms of like, secretive would be like a data protection thing or mm -hmm. if there's a personal thing that like imagine if there was a person who had a serious issue that's not something you could just broadcast to the rest of the team because it might be sensitive there may be some underlying things so ultimately people get the information that they're allowed to get i'm quite upfront i'm quite transparent i can understand if some people aren't or whatever reason but if I make a mistake, I'll say I made a mistake. This is what I've learned from that mistake. This is what we can do to make sure that this doesn't happen. Or what can we do as a team? The thing that I learned a lot of is if I come in all the time and I fix everything for everyone, then the team never sort of rise to the occasion or like feel that they have the power to um, or the confidence to make some decisions and stuff like that. Whilst the decision ultimately is mine. I like people to say, oh, we have this problem, but we can do this with it rather than just, 
we have this problem. What are you going to do about it? Like, so that people feel that they can say, okay, this is the issue. This is my suggestion. And then we can discuss it. And if it's a mistake, if something happens, it's a learning, like we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Transparency is the best way to be communicative with everyone so that everybody's on the same page. You have all the information you need when things start to get a bit secretive. If it's not important, then I'm not going to tell you if it is important and relevant to the topic, then of course you'll, you'll know it because how you expect somebody to do their job without all the information. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough job. You know, zookeeping can be, can be tough. There's a lot of things going on and it doesn't get, uh, you know, less tough because you're in that sort of leadership position. It only makes it harder. So, um, yeah, thank you for, uh, you know, talking about that. I think it's some good, um, insight for people that may be in that sort of situation and have those relationships. Uh, so you, so you mentioned, um, you know, being that sort of in that sort of wildlife educator role, spokesperson role. Um, and this is a super important, uh, skill, skill set for, you know, keeping staff, uh, to have. So do you have any sort of advice for giving great, you know, educational talks, um, you know, being a great teacher, you know, imparting all of your messaging and stuff onto the public and, and advice around that. Um, yeah, in a way, uh, a good, like I didn't immediately, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm the best presenter there was. I had done some media work, like pictures and maybe some interviews and stuff like that. And you immediately sort of get like some people, most people get nervous talking in front of large crowds or when a camera's pointed at them or they get a bit like, so I had those things and then moving and this helped me massively moving to a position that involved me being in front of a crowd all the time and having other people, a friend of mine, Kat, she's like one of the best presenters I know and she joined the team. Her animal experience was lower, but her presenter experience, because that's what she had done at London, they have like a presenter team that would go to enclosures and give presentations. And then they had my department who would be doing demonstrations with animals. So we'd be flying birds or having animals do certain routines and stuff like that. So the two things are the same, but they're, they're very different and working with her on how to be like a great and engaging presenter. There was like quite a few tips and things that she gave us or me specifically. One was like being yourself. Hmm. Like it's, it's difficult to um, interact with somebody or really connect with somebody. If you're putting on like a, a facade because it's just not comfortable. It's not natural. It's not how you normally behave and people can pick up on that and like having fun, like realizing that, if something goes wrong, the audience doesn't know it's gone wrong. They don't know. They haven't seen the show. If an animal like flies off or does something, they could probably piece it together. But ultimately, they're not going to immediately be like, bah, ha, ha, you did it wrong. What a fool. Yeah. So like just like cutting yourself a bit of slack, having a bit of fun. And then the most important thing is like knowing your subject matter. So ultimately it came to a point where the talks that we would be giving or the facts that we would have would be so ingrained into our head that we would just be spouting them out while concentrating on what we're doing with the animals and stuff because it's very distracting when you're trying to give a presentation to people and a bird flies at you or lands in the audience or um, some rats run off the stage or mm. do something they're not supposed to do and so one of the things that uh, we started to do is like a bit of a practice is we would say we would have scripts. Obviously, they would be like rough guides about what you're going to say, like facts about animals and stuff like that. And we basically get like a ball and just have somebody throw a ball back and forth mm. to you and at you and around. So your attention was trying to like catch the ball and do that while you're reciting your your lines, essentially. And that was like a really good way for me to be able to know my subject matter, be confident in what I'm saying, and learn how to deal with things going slightly awry or practicing without 
worrying too much about if I make a mistake or if I say something wrong. And then once you get more and more comfortable or confident and stuff, you can then start to have a bit of fun. And we each give each other like a word that you have to throw into your presentation, like a random word or something like that. And you're trying to connect people with wildlife and whether they're in a show or not in a show. And we can talk about that in a second because it's very con controversial. But um, whether they're in a show or not, you're trying to tell a story. And often the easiest thing to talk about with people is like adaptations and seeing people's faces when animals are super close to them or are doing things. You can just see how many people, especially in a city like London, where the majority of the people are never outside of zoos or TV programs, are going to see any of these animals, especially to have that up close, is something that like immediately they're like, oh, this was amazing, this and this. And then they learn about it. And we obviously had, excuse me, some native species. And we didn't have anything massive, obviously, because it's not like we're going to take a rhino out for the demonstration, but a lot of different animals and how important they are. And then the fun little things that they can do to help the planet, better the planet, support or conservation, see what changes they make because people don't know necessarily when they come to a zoo outside of like zoo losers like us that oh when i come to a zoo i'm my ticket might go towards conservation or uh, if i pay for this that will help there or if i use this product or that like they miss those things but learning about like fsc products what things have palm oil in them small changes that they can make at home that'll help ultimately with the bigger picture. And then also we always get such a bad rap with like conservation and stuff like that. And not all the animals that we have in Canada or in Greece are going to be your lions, your tigers, your giraffe, your, but that doesn't mean they're not important or they don't hold uh, a specific slot in the, the ecosystem there. So even if you're doing a really, I mean, New Zealand was probably one of the better ones. We did some cool stuff in uh, ZSL London Zoo, but specifically reptiles and things like that. There's not much in the way of conservation for the UK that we were doing. We did a breeding program for the mountain chicken frog from yeah. uh, Dominica and stuff like that with a bunch of other zoos. But in New Zealand, we were actually doing breed for release because all the animals that we were working, well, not all, but a lot of the animals we were working with were native species. So we had different types of ducks. We had kaka, the parrot, and we would um, breed. And then we would be able to see or physically go and release them into either a hardening facility or directly out into the wild. So even though that's, for me, like really good in terms of conservation, that doesn't mean having a chat with somebody and explaining to them why you should use certain products or why this would have an impact on wildlife isn't conservation or isn't as important. They're all beneficial across the board. And you doing talks and you doing presentations is you trying to connect those two three, however many, whatever your messaging is, to the people because they're the ones that are coming to the zoo. They're the ones that are spending their money to pay for your job, to pay for the conservation programs and all those things. So I think if you see it as, because you always get people like, oh, members of the public, they're, that's a funny looking animal or, <laughs> and people are like, ugh. Yeah. But like, ultimately they're there and they're there, which means you can be there doing the stuff that you're doing and re repeat visits, people getting interested, doing things, even a small change helps. So I think that even if people aren't comfortable speaking, even having a small chat, like it's very different to present in front of like four or five hundred, a thousand people. But even if you like chat to a family as you're passing by because they have a question or they're doing something like even that can have an impact. And obviously yeah. the more that happens, the more stuff that, that people do, the better it's going to be. So usually if you, you're yourself and stuff, that passion comes across and that 
inspires people and yeah so yeah that's a lot Hope of that answered your question <laughs> that's a lot of really great advice i also wrote down mountain chicken frog because i saw a mountain chicken frog for the first time up close uh a couple months ago at a zoo in the states and they're very very cool animals it uh i was i had to do a double take to see i was like did they have a fake frog in that thing it's uh they look they look wild they're but... massive and they taste like chicken. Oh, that's why <laughs> I didn't get to taste it. I just got to see it. So, uh, yeah, no, that's a lot of really good advice. I particularly like the, um, you know, uh, the note about sort of passion, uh, because I often, you know, uh, talk to people about this, like, um, you know, if, if you like, even with interviews and stuff like that, like if you can't tell me why you're passionate about this zoo as a zookeeper or about your job or about these animals. Like if you can't in, in just a conversation with the two of us, then like you're not going to be able to do it to a group, uh, a crowd, uh, you know, a member of the public. So getting good at, you know, having passionate conversations and imparting that passion on people is, is yeah, so important, especially, you know, th those are two different skill sets with the you know, giving those big talks to crowds and crowds of people in like a sort of a, a show, an animal show, which I definitely want to talk to you about. Um, and, uh, you know, having those sort of small groups, uh, it's, it's easier to have a, a bigger impact. I find a lot of the time on, on, on smaller groups when you're giving like a behind the scenes tour, but, but you can do, you can affect like a massive amount of people with those sort of shows. So it's, and it's two different sort of skill sets and it's two different, you know, ways of approaching things. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's super important to have that sort of passion and to, to practice it, you know, even just, uh, with one-on-one -on -one conversations, that's, that's probably how, how you get good at it. And like, it's a life skill, regardless of whether yeah. you're in an interview and you're like, I can present to 500 people or whatever. Ultimately, if you're confident at public speaking, that's going to help in loads of aspects. If you go to a conference and you need to give a presentation, if you're in an interview, like having the confidence to know how to speak to a crowd, what to discuss. It's it's a skill that a lot of people don't have, but it's very prevalent in our industry, like communication and talking to people and stuff like that. And I get I get why people shy away from it. It can be like intimidating and nervous. And when you have that weird like oh, my voice and your voice is going all weird like that happened to me. Oh, and yeah. only by and this is true of anything only by practicing and doing. Do you get better at things? And once you feel confident, like I said, once you feel confident in the subject matter, then you can talk about that for however long you need to talk about it. And like drawing attention to things, making jokes about stuff like the whole never work with children and animals. <laughs> like as soon as you can do all of those things, it has so many different like avenues in your in your career or even your life like. I don't know. I don't do karaoke, but I'll happily do a show in front of however many hundreds of people. So, yeah, I think people need to see the importance in communication, but also with the the public, because the public are the ones that fund predominantly everything that we do in terms of zoos. Mm. And without them, zoos would be closed and they would be without a job. So... Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, as well, like it's, um, you know, having, having that, that ability is, is also a way for you uh, having those sort of passionate conversations with people is also a way, at least for me to like sort of rejuvenate my love of the industry and what I do, you know, like you forget sometimes, uh, you know, when you're taking care of mountain chicken frogs, how cool they are the first time you see them or, uh, you know, whatever it is and, and, and having that conversation with a person and, or seeing a kid when they see a polar bear up close or something for the first time, it can really sort of, uh, spark that like, oh yeah, this is why I do that. You know, I'm not just cause you kind of get, you know, you can get absorbed in the day to day. And I think it's, it's a, it's a great way to do that. And also a great way of, you know, keeping your own, your own sort of passion alive with those kind of things. And like the different species, there's so many different animals that people like zookeeper. You'll get zookeepers that are like, I like bears, but then you'll, yeah, you will get zookeepers that are like, 
I like this obscure little bug that's only found on Vancouver Island or something yeah. like that. And those are the conversations that are the important ones because they're about this is an animal that's in your country. You need to care for it because blah, 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 blah. And then you've essentially like changed a life or made somebody their trip even better and want to come back again and or they want to grow up and go through a, a study of animals or biology or conservation or something. So you don't know the impact you're going to have on somebody. And it's it's important to to kind of make those connections, especially if you're that's what you're trying to do. Basically, I would think yeah. care for the animals and make other people care for those animals. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, you had mentioned, um, you know, like animal shows and, and those kind of things and, and, you know, the, a lot of developments around that and a lot of, you know, accrediting bodies have, have done a lot of work with, um, you know, animal welfare assessments of ambassador animals and, and, and different things like that. Where do you see, uh, you know, the sort of traditional, a zoo show going and, and, and what are your thoughts on, on a lot of the controversy and and stuff going around about that recently well where to start okay so at zoo spenceful and in general obviously i come from doing show background and peter has a marine mammal background so stuff like killer whales and dolphins and things like that and um we believe, both of us, we've discussed it at length, that ultimately, if there's a welfare benefit to the animal, then personally and professionally, we don't see any issues with demonstrations or something. The, the places that problems lie for me are when somebody maybe has a bird of prey. That's a classic example. That'll be in a very small aviary, and then the justification for the enclosure or whatever will be, oh, this is a show animal, and they come out and they free fly for five minutes a day or ten minutes a day or something like that. So while there's a welfare benefit, is the welfare of the animal up to that point mm. high, satisfactory, low? So shows are an excellent way to enrich the animals uh, connect with people and all those sorts of things so if the animal is benefiting but from that you need to understand i guess what good welfare looks like and how it's presented if the show takes place in the exhibit already is it considered a show you have all the word the like presentation show whatever. And the other thing that people often forget is like, there's accredited, non-accredited, but like even in the EU, the shows that you have in the UK versus the shows that you have in Spain versus the shows that you have, there's so many differences. And yes, some areas and some countries would be considered behind based off the types of behaviors maybe that are, are being shown, their tricks rather than behaviors see i did it myself i was like behaviors yeah <laughs> it's it's just about terminology it's about the way that it's presented and stuff like that so ultimately if you're looking at something and the animal is having a, a a welfare benefit then i don't see why that would be so frowned upon like obviously with people saying about like circuses and animals having um Oh, the other one that would be a good one to talk about is choice and control. Mm. The hot words mm. that people always use. Um, but the funny thing is, is like, they're like, oh, I'm going to give them the choice. Okay, well, what happens if they choose no? Do they still get the yeah. reinforcement that they would get for the show that they said they don't want to do? Most of the time, no. And like, you get people saying like, I'm going to have a conversation. And if they opt out... That's another one, opt out of doing the behavior. Um, I want them to, like, I don't know, be able to communicate that with me. But I'm like, but if they fuck off or, sorry, excuse me, like swim away or fly off, that's a clear indication that they've opted out of, yeah. of coming with you. Like, ultimately, these shows, all these things, 
there's a lot of associated learning or things that are happening just before the show. So if the animal does something, then that's a clear indication to me, okay, the animal doesn't want to participate or is not really, so I don't need to have like an opt-in or an opt-out or whatever if the animal is telling me this is a no from me. So I think people just need to be more, I don't know, mindful of those like conversations and then ultimately think, okay, what is the benefit for the animal? Is there a benefit? Is there not a benefit? Am I having to box that animal, stick it on the back of a vehicle, drive it five minutes through a busy, noisy zoo, let it sit in a box for 10 minutes, then it comes out for two minutes, then it goes back and sits until the end of the show and then comes all the way. Like, no, probably that wouldn't be a welfare benefit. But maybe we're in the exhibit with some monkeys or something and they come down and start doing all these like behaviors that show off their adaptations or exercise or something like that, then yeah, potentially that would have a welfare benefit if it doesn't start to impact, I don't know, maybe they start to anticipate things or stuff like that. So for me, I don't see an issue, but I'd be curious to know what a Canadian, a fellow Canadian thinks yeah. about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, a lot of the points you touched on there, uh, is the main concerns with it, with a lot of these, these, uh, you know, quote unquote shows, like it, it's a, for a long, a long history of, um, of these shows. A lot of the time, the, the animals that were chosen to participate in these shows weren't necessarily held to the same standards as, you know, the rest of the zoo. If you had a sort of, uh, uh, maybe like an outreach lemur, the outreach lemur, if it lives in a different section of the zoo, the sort of, you know, uh, educator section of the zoo or, or outreach section is probably going to live in a different environment than the environment that was made for lemurs that you might have in a, in a building on site. And that's not necessarily, uh, I think, uh, conducive to a sort of a modern understanding of animal welfare. I think, you know, if, if, uh, they need to be the same standards and, you need to be able to to show, you know, positive uh, well being with a lot of these animals, and that you know the piece on choice and control, and and a lot of those areas like thinking about these kind of things and putting actual you know a real thought and a, a lot of method behind you know these these topics. I think is what separates uh, you know uh, good shows from maybe sort of uh, you know zoo. Uh, shows of the past and, uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I completely agree with, uh, with everything you said. Good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's important to think about. And a lot of those accrediting bodies are really, uh, definitely focusing on, um, you know, that sort of back of house piece for a lot of those, um, you know, show animals and, and educating, uh, outreach animals, uh, because yeah, that's a, it's, you know, they need to be held to the same standards as a, you know, a lemur on site versus in the outreach department. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's there specifically for like, it could be in that group, but actually it's in this enclosure for this specific reason. Then you're like, okay, I can't see how that's like a benefit. And I know Sabrina was, was at the cooperative care conference that, uh, Zeus Pencil does. And she, um, talked about that and I found that to be so relevant and so interesting especially when she like broke it down in the amount of days and stuff and the amount of category one animals or uh, you get two animals and you're like oh shit they bred and now I have three animals and now it, nobody wants it and now it's of an age that it needs to be moved out somewhere and stuff and like thinking about like and you always see it on any sort of like map or something. You see like the 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 enclosure that is the off display bit, and then you see the rest of the enclosure, and then you're like, well, actually, you spend more time here than you do there. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that like during that conference and in general uh, about Sabrina, because you always talk about like when you go home for the day, like mm -hmm. our day is not massive and in london it was like the zoo would open at 10 and close at maybe like six or just before six and we were there at eight and in the winter it's eight to four and in the summer it's eight to six and 
even if that you move that from that eight hours a day to that 10 hours a day, there's still that whole like, what do you do at night with nocturnal animals for enrichment or mm -hmm. crepuscular animals when that would be the normal time that they would be feeding and stuff like that. So we started to think about stuff like that. But then also Sabrina and the 24-7 thing pointing out the fact that potentially, and I mean, you've seen backstage areas and whenever you go on tours and you like meet people or whatever, they always excuse like, the state of the backstage area or whatever and usually it's the same sort of like concrete floor separate little dens maybe some bark chip or some wood wool on the ground and like that's it and then yeah so that's something that i think people need to um pay more attention when they're like looking to build an exhibit or something like future plan mm. what's the worst case scenario because we all know that like an animal will have a baby or something will get sick or something will die and we'll need to bring in something for quarantine. And then you always have to quarantine them in like the worst spaces up at the hospital, which yeah. are meant to be sterile because it's a hospital and disease prevention and stuff like that. So taking that time to think, okay, it's an environment. This is where the animal is going to be. What, what would be the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is if we have to separate them or there's a third one. So do we have enough space? Are all the needs being met? Are these all things that we can make sure that are going to be ticked off rather than just, oh, well, they have the main exhibit, which is like massive or whatever. And you're like, well, yeah, but they send 66% of their lives not in that exhibit. So yeah. Anyway, no. sidebar. Absolutely. And and I think that the same goes for, you know, ambassador animals and stuff like they didn't, you know, a lemur didn't put up their hand one day and said, can I join your ambassador program? <laughs> like, yeah, like it, it's it. They didn't choose to be in these in it, like these situations a lot of the time. So giving as much, uh, you know, of their natural behavior input, as well as, you know, their choice input into their sort of lives and, and giving them agency and, and, you know, paying attention to them and, and making it intentional uh, is is yeah the some of the most important steps that you can take in you know improving an animal welfare program absolutely and yeah as we said the same goes for ambassador animals and show animals and all that kind of stuff and it's massive about public perception because you get the classic oh that that's a cute pet or that would be like mm. great and. It's more, per I don't know what it's like in Canada, but it's obviously massive in the States with the amount of random things that you can just own as pets, like primates. Oh, yeah. I don't know who would ever that, but if you're at a zoo and you're doing a show and the animal's like drinking tea or doing something ridiculous, then it kind of like moves to that public perception of like, okay, now we're moving into the territory of whatever. So it's just about the way that you sort of frame it. But an animal pretending to drink tea is not more of a complex behavior of the animal jumping somewhere or mm -hmm. going somewhere. It's still a trained behavior. If you're showing off certain adaptations or the animal's doing something that it would do normally, then it's easier for people to swallow. But I mean, ultimately, short of it, most of the stuff would be the same. So I think... I think, yeah, perception is a, is a big thing that you just have to be aware of. But if I don't think one thing is going to be better because it looks more like this, perception-wise, it's better. Mm. But in terms of animal welfare, it's not like, oh, I had to do this instead of this. They still got the reward they needed or they wanted or whatever. I don't think they're going to be like, no, shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, no. And and I, I think, uh, you know, talking about perception segues nicely into reptile welfare and enrichment because I find from based on what I've seen at a lot of zoos perception in reptile exhibits and where they live is a lot of the time seems to be the the predominant thought and how people are going to perceive these exhibits as opposed to what the natural history of the of the reptile is and what uh what environmental cues are going to make them, you know, uh, sort of demonstrate their natural behaviors and, and do the things that they have evolved to do. You know, you see too many 
fake plants hanging and decorating and 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 nice looking rocks and, and all sorts of stuff in in uh, you know animals exhibits uh, and particularly reptiles exhibits. Uh, you see a lot of um, arboreal uh, reptiles that don't have anywhere to climb and 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 stuff like that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, having a lot of experience with with reptiles. Uh, if you've noticed that too, and and sort of what you what you think about that whole uh, re- reptile welfare and, and enrichment. Uh, yeah, you basically nailed it on the head about like species adaptations or their natural history. Like when you're, and I mean this is true of any animal, but when you're getting an an animal or about to house an animal, the first place I like to look at is like their natural history. Where are they from? What does their habitat look like? What's a day temperature, a night temperature? Not just all the time, seasonally. What's the humidity like? What do they do? So like, what are their activity budgets? Do they spend uh, from, and usually early morning or mid morning, they're out eating midday when it's the hottest, they're sheltered away somewhere. And then at the end of the day, again, eating or doing something and like, what do they eat? What is the UV situation like? Mm-hmm. Obviously, UV is a massive one, and it's come a long way. Um, even since I started reptile keeping years ago. And then I use this information to try and get the environments as, I guess, dynamic as possible. So that the opportunities are are there for them without me having to solely rely on like additions to the exhibit, like mm-hmm. a puzzle feeder or um, a substrate pile or a scent trail or whatever. And then you can look obviously at sensory modalities. So like what's that reptile's main way of seeing the world or investigating things and then go from there. Like you say, arboreal reptiles with nowhere to climb or like a snake that uses scent and things in a very sterile environment. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing, well, funny, (laughs) it's a bit sad, but, and it's not just true of reptiles, but people always use reproduction as like the goalpost of successful Mm. keeping of reptiles. Like, Oh, it bred. I must be doing everything right. And you're like, "Mm." and then you get people who keep um, snakes in those like rack systems, like hobbyists and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who will who will breed their snakes but does that mean the environment is taking all of the physiological uh, mental behavioral needs of that animal no i mean we can be very clear no it's not mm-hmm. so using reproduction is like a a goalpost of successful um husbandry i find and people do it a lot they do it a lot for reptiles and i think they do it for birds as well i don't know if it's like the same mammally things or with horses or something but yeah yeah no so yeah in terms of enrichment environment stuff yeah and and uh, yeah that's usually the first question i ask uh when i I, like things like uh, alligators and and uh large snakes like you know anacondas and stuff like that is is a you know question that i get all the time for for enrichment like i need more uh, alligator enrichment more alligator enrichment and the first thing I ask is like, send me a picture of their pool, you know, with their aquatic space. Like, and it's all almost always a, a perfectly clear pool with, you know, a concrete bottom and that's it. And I'm like, what alligator floats through perfectly clear water and, and, and just exists in like a little clear pond. Like that's not where like they exist in. And it's the same for, you know, things like anacondas there. They exist in, in dense cover and marshland and, and, and those kind of things. And that's a, that's a perfect example of, you know, a public perception, a clear pool looks good. Cause you can see the whole alligator and I'm sure there's lots of alligators mm-hmm. that do well in that situation. But at the end of the day, it's not conducive to their natural environment. And uh, you know, even though there might not be, the welfare indicators that we need to directly point to certain things. I think that uh, you can make an argument that they need that sort of environment to, to, to thrive. Yeah. Uh, it, having like the ideal is to take a snapshot out of where the animal would come in the wild and then just plop them right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Great. But then what else does that animal do? What 
does it spend its time doing normally? How much time is it resting? How much time is it moving? When is it moving? Hunting. Hunting is obviously, uh, it depends on the country, but most of the places, vertebrates are illegal to feed to reptiles, to uh, carnivores, other vertebrates and stuff like that. I feel like, I don't know, what's the deal with fish in um, Canada? Canada? Uh, it, it can be hit and miss depending on, it's the same in, in the States from what I've, uh, experienced. It's, um, very dependent on the specific, uh, you know, accreditation body, but a lot of the time for the feeder animals, uh, especially fish, uh, they just have to be able to get away and they have to be able to survive independently in the environment, even if the animal you're feeding them to doesn't eat them. So, okay. Usually. So, yeah, so snapshot but like what does they do hunting in in the uk and in a lot of the eu it's illegal even like for fish or something like that so everything is dead and that's obviously a massive chunk of time energy and stuff so how to recreate that what's the best way to get that animal to do what it would do before it catches its prey sort of a thing rather than just heat up a mouse and stick it in and bang it's done or a fish and bang it's done so yeah looking at the stuff that you said about an environment and what it's supposed to look like it's also about what it does and then also what are the behaviors that you're wanting to see from it like it's adapted and created in a way that facilitates something so what is it that it facilitates and how can you replicate that um, this was obviously a while ago, back in my old days of reptiles, <laughs> but I had heard about the Emerald Tree Monitor using uh, its forelimb to pull um, grubs and things from logs and stuff like that. I think I read it in the uh, BioWack journals right. or something like that. So I made like little enrichment devices and it was so cool. I can send you the video. It's old, but <laughs> excuse me. It was so cool to see the the monitor do the behavior that you read about just by sort of setting it up according to what it's meant to be doing and then we had other tree monitors and i was like i wonder if they'll do the same thing and then i found like a lot of them actually are quite um mobile with their their claws and fingers and stuff like that so it was quite cool yeah um yeah so in terms of like how to enrich the lives of reptiles first and foremost is making sure their environment is right and second of all like what opportunities are present within that environment that are going to elicit these natural behaviors and in order to know what's natural you need to read up on your animal you need to understand why its tail is prehensile or how much time it's going to spend on the ground versus up high basking and the uv thing is such a big one like mm. knowing about and i mean i don't know what uv you guys use but i'm a big arcadia guy not sponsored but i'm always looking for podcast sponsors so you never know <laughs> arcadia best uv ever <laughs> yeah no that's that's uh that's definitely a big one and, and that's a ton of really great uh advice yeah and uh, there's so many interesting natural behaviors that there's so many reptiles that don't get the opportunity to perform them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's huge. So, uh, last sort of wrap up question here. Uh, and I've started asking this people, uh, to people recently, uh, you know, if there's a poster that you could put up in every animal care facility that people would actually read, it's not like a poster that's under a bunch of magazines or something. Uh, what would it say and, and, and why, why would it say it? Um, I can't remember, maybe you know, I can't remember who said it, but it was your level of care is their quality of life. Mm. Have you ever heard? I have heard that. Yeah, I'm not sure, not sure where from though. Yeah, so I know somebody said it, but I couldn't, I looked for it, but I couldn't remember who it was. But for me and in general, I think that has such an impact because if you think about like, when people are like, oh, I'll, I'll train that animal or enrich it when I have time or if I have time or 
Oh, it's only going to be in that off display enclosure for a short time because we're just renovating this or I'm going to do that. And then you think of it as like, okay, no, what you're doing is affecting their quality of life. And then it makes me like stop and think about like, okay, even if it's going here and a lot of the time these things are like they say only for this amount of time but we know that sometimes that gets extended or i'll just do that later and then you don't actually get to that later oh, yeah. then yeah for me that's a big one because it makes you realize why you're there you're there for the animals that also helps with in quotations egos of people that are like uh, I disagree with you or I have a problem with you and this and you're like, well, that's great, but we're not here for each other. We're here for the animals and you have the same goal as I have. So yeah, why, how we get to that goal. Yeah. Not as important as, as long as we get to that goal. So for me, that's a real good one. Um, I don't know what would be on the poster, but maybe a mountain chicken frog would be a good one. Uh, Grant, well, thank you so much, uh, for coming on. This was a fantastic, uh, and wide ranging conversation. So, um, I, I, I do appreciate you coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, and to everyone listening, uh, until next time, thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you. Thank you.